Hey there, and welcome to the Jimmy's Table podcast at jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey. I'm curiously evangelical, politically homeless, and a dreamer of small things. On this podcast, I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. So if you have honest questions, aren't afraid to have difficult conversations, and want to have a little fun along the way, then pull up a chair. This podcast is for you. So today's episode 169 of the jimmystable.com podcast, and I'm going to talk about what it means to be a man in an age of toxicity and confusion. So, what does it mean to be a man? And is masculinity in and of itself a thing called toxic? Masculinity these days tends to get a bad rap, and any man claiming to embrace their masculine nature is automatically suspect by many. To embrace traditional masculine norms is often considered toxic, not only by certain segments of popular culture, but it has even had some shade thrown on it by some controversial guidelines recently issued by the American Psychological Association. Back in 2019, the APA issued some controversial statements in which they stated, The APA defines traditional masculinity as a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, including anti-femininity, achievement, a skew of the appearance of weakness, adventure, risk, and violence. These guidelines, which were highlighted in the January issue of the APA's Monitor of Psychology magazine, say the pressure of boys and men to feel to conform to certain aspects of traditional masculinity can lead to poor health outcomes, including higher rates of suicide, substance abuse, violence, and even early death. End of quote. Of course, their controversial comments were balanced by some more nuanced and positive comments about masculinity. The APA also stated, but in the term traditional masculinity does not refer to all masculine traits, said APA chief in professional practice, Jared Skillings, defending the new guidelines, he stated, we're talking about negative traits such as violence or overcompetitive behavior or the unwillingness to admit weakness, Skilling said. Of course, masculinity also has positive traits, courage, leadership, protectiveness. This report speaks and includes both sides, end quote. So, It's not just as all as bad as the headline can make things sound and even in the opening paragraphs and some of the statements they made. The APA is willing to recognize that there are both good and bad traits that can be associated with masculinity. Not just bad things, of course, but good things. And that it can recognize that there is a distinction between males and females and and their very natures, both biologically and culturally. Nature and nurture, as, uh, as the saying goes. And I think it's important to note this because, well, frankly, I want to say it. And it may be controversial for me to say it, but this is going to be the stance I take. There are differences between men and women, uh, between boys and girls. But in popular culture, these differences aren't really recognized all that much. And while the spirit of our age is officially egalitarian in its view of the genders, that is, that there's an equality between men and women, in reality, our culture is much more mushy 
in a sense in which we really aren't egalitarian in the perspective that is being espoused by many in our culture, but that we're really kind of androgynous in our views of gender, with a bent, if we have anything, towards being pro-woman and anti-man. If we are really philosophically committed to the egalitarian ideals that are espoused by many, I get egalitarian ideals, which I would say, so far as I've been able to say and read these things, generally agree with, we would welcome and I believe celebrate the differences between both men and women in our culture. We could affirm their differences in personhood, their unique traits, biologically, psychologically, and culturally, while at the same time affirming their equality and humanity and dignity in the sight of God. But I believe our gender, or, but I believe our society and culture isn't really interested in gender equality. Gender is being viewed with something that we can just liquefy in a blender, making it impossible to make solid distinctions between the two, or a term that we can even define. To attempt to define what a man is or what a woman is has become such a cultural and political hot potato. Now, this controversy recently found its way into normally the boring hearings of the Supreme Court. In recent confirmation hearings of Supreme Court Justice Jackson, now Justice Jackson, who is a woman, was asked by one senator, well, what is a woman? How would you define what a woman is? Which, you know, is a very loaded thing to be asking somebody who is a woman, especially in this cultural moment that we have been experiencing in recent years. But for this simply, simple, innocent-sounding question, which, you know, at the end of the day, ended up being a very politically loaded one, Justice Jackson made headlines for refusing to answer and basically punting to other experts because that's something that she couldn't really define. We live ultimately in a society that has become uncomfortable in saying what is a man and what is a woman. But we have become rather comfortable instead in saying things like gender is a social construct. And we talk about gender identity taking place on a spectrum and having some sense of fluidity. And in this fluid stream of gender identity, our culture has come up with some pretty colorful and sometimes outright crude labels and language to identify people who fall on this spectrum of gender fluidity. Considering the following terms, and I'm going to say these terms, and some of these are just simple innocent terms, but some of them definitely are slang, and some of them are definitely slurs that our culture talks about and uses, both on the left and the right, by the way, to identify people of various gender identities. And I say these just as a way of disclaimer, so as not to get myself in trouble to make it sound like I'm endorsing these things. But these are just used, as these quotes I'm going to use, are used for illustrative purposes to talk about the way our culture talks about various gender identities. And in saying that, I'm not endorsing necessarily all the terminology. So we use terms like male and female. But we also use terms like alpha male, boss girl, king, queen, beta males, sissies, tomboys, tom girls, cisgender, queer, 
non-binary, trans, bitches, bastards, dykes, tods, and Karens. So we have a lot of language that we use no matter where you fall on the spectrum of philosophy regarding the differences between men and women. Whether you are much more traditional in your assessment of gender and that sort of thing, or much more, uh, let's say, progressive in your perspective on these things. Either way, we've come up with a heck of a lot of terms to describe men and women of various imprints and outputtings of who they are as individuals. All these labels and identities are essentially an assortment of archetypes that people are modeling themselves after or that we see and identify in others as embodying in some way, shape, or form. For some, it's an identity that they gladly take up regarding themselves, and for others, it's yet an identity that is thrust upon them. But as a result, is it really a surprise? Is it really a surprise then that of all the gender identities that exist in our culture, that Facebook felt the need to select from 50 gender identities <laughs> as a possible selection when creating a profile on Facebook? Such is simply the state of our union. Such is simply the reality of the culture and where it presently stands and in which we live. So with all this said, and having plunged into the swirl of our current culture, where does that leave us? Is it possible to understand what a man is? And since this podcast is produced by me, an evangelical Christian, what can we say about the quote-unquote term biblical manhood and all the controversies that surround themselves with such phrases? At the end of the day, I'm simply wanting to find out what does it mean to be a man? First, I believe it must be acknowledged that when we are talking about men and women, we are talking about individuals who are of the same species, both who have been created in the image and likeness of God. We may have different imperatives in the way that we are hardwired, but we have more in common than that which makes us distinct. There is a considerable overlap between men and women and who they are, because who they are is, is humans created in the image and likeness of God. We are equally intelligent, equally emotional, and equally virtuous. But at the same time, we are put here on earth to be fruitful and multiply. Our biological function and purpose cannot be disentangled from this function and each other. This is true not only from a theological perspective, but a biological and evolutionary one as well. And though we live in an age that, because of things like contraception or abortion, that tries to divorce our raw, organic, biological function and sexuality from our gender identities, I believe such ideology is ultimately one that is divorced from reality. And we take these modern achievements and the technology associated behind it and we kind of blur the lines at some point between what a man is, what a woman is, what their function is, sexuality, and how that plays out for who they are in their humanity and how they function within a broader society. Manhood, and controversially, um, womanhood, 
I believe are ultimately grounded in certain biological, biological functions and realities. And anyone that ignores or make light, I believe, of these distinctions is simply drunk on some sort of ideology. And I don't know what that ideology always is. It tends to change depending on generation to generation. But if you're simply willing to ignore what is a biological distinction, a physical reality of the universe, you're drunk on something. That, that what you're drunk on has nothing to do <laughs> with anything that is real. Whatever overlaps men and women may ultimately share, they have different biological realities that center around reproduction. Men produce sperm and women produce eggs and can have babies. Boys have penises and girls have vaginas. If I can quote uh, the great kindergarten cop comedian <laughs> from that one movie. I know, and that almost sounds crude to say. Gosh, that sounds so controversial to say. But I think it's something we need to be more comfortable saying in our culture. Because it's almost like if you highlight these differences today, that you have to apologize for acknowledging these distinctions at all. Because, again, we haven't become egalitarian in our culture. We're androgynous in our philosophy. And because sex has its possible outcome beyond mere physical pleasure, the creation of children, since men and women play different roles in that process, I believe there's also associated with that certain temperaments and responsibilities that come with that. Sex is a high-risk activity. I think we often forget that. We often forget that because it has been clouded by things like contraception, and abortion, and some of the attitudes we take towards sex and reproduction today. And because of technology, sex doesn't seem maybe as high risk of an activity, especially with uh, birth rates being greater than they've ever been in regard to the ability to successfully bear children without the child dying or the mother dying. Mort child mortality rate is better, um, and women surviving pregnancy is better. But the reality is, children can be born from the activity of sex. And women, because of that, find themselves in a very vulnerable place. Women can literally lose their lives in childbirth. And while the advances of medical science have made such increasingly rare in many parts of the world, it's still very much a reality that every woman that has ever had a child ultimately faces. And on both sides of childbirth, during pregnancy and after giving birth, Women also find themselves in a dangerous place physically. While women are quite amazing in their physical capacities, while pregnant, they may ultimately find themselves rendered physically unable to fully care for themselves or to be limited in some sort of capacity in their ability to physically move and, and care for themselves. They may, because of a high-risk pregnancy, have to lay in bed for a long period of time, in which... They become very vulnerable throughout all this. Then, of course, there's dealing with a newborn child itself and typically having to do things like nurse it and care for it. And while newborn children aren't always able to be breastfed for a number of reasons, and some of those being modern, physically speaking, women will have to give much of their attention and, and their bodies to the feeding and nourishing 
of a newborn child. And as a result of these things, women for the sake of risk associated with childbearing, before, during, and after, tend to be a little bit more selective about who they mate with. Not always. We've all seen the Jerry Springer show. But there's this tendency that women have a selectivity process when it comes to choosing a mate for the sake of not only their own lives, but the lives of their offspring. Women typically, and should, choose men who demonstrate the traits that give them and their offspring the best chance of surviving so that humanity can continue to propagate itself. As a result of these biological realities and functions associated with reproduction, this demands that men are something more than just sperm donors. Men must also be individuals who have certain outstanding traits and characteristics that can ensure the safety and well-being of their mate and their offspring. And such men, more often than not, will be selected as mates for which to propagate the species. And as a result, men must have some level of things like physical strength and capacity for this functionality. They must be able to protect, to provide, and to make women and their offspring feel and experience safety, especially in times in which both will be physically vulnerable. This will often require them to be in good physical health themselves, to have a strong sense of confidence, a strong sense of loyalty, and the ability to be assertive, to show leadership, to make tough decisions, to obtain a certain level of success and social status, and the mastery of certain set of skills to transform the world around them. And those who lack these basic traits will be seen simply as less desirable mates and maybe a little bit as less masculine than some of the other options. A little bit less manly, if you will. And so their offspring might grow up and to one day repeat the process of their parents. Men also must be able to show their sons how they too one day can grow up and function as men. And men serve as sort of mentors to their sons to show them how they can be men in the world so that they too can reproduce, have offspring, and ultimately repeat the pattern that keeps humanity alive for generation after generation. So then, what does it ultimately mean to be a man? What is masculinity? To be a man, to be masculine, when rightly understood from a biological perspective, is understood as part of the created natural order, and it consists of a particular constellation, if I can borrow the phrase from the APA, of characteristics which men possess that exist for the creation of human reproduction and flourishing. Masculinity is firmly rooted in a man's basic biology, but it's also those characteristics which arise out of his unique function as a man in the mating process, and that which also exists for the propagation and flourishing of human life. That's ultimately what makes a man a man. But, I know in saying that, some of that might sound a little barbaric and crude-like in their descriptions to some of you. Might be, some of you might even dare clutch your pearls of outrage and say that's a chauvinistic way of thinking. And I'd imagine that those with more progressive ideals of the world might ultimately be a little uncomfortable or even upset at saying these things out loud. 
But these are the realities of the world which we have lived in for all of human history. Of course, though, such can sometimes be hard to imagine in our contemporary and modern and urbanized world with all its conveniences and things that make it possible for women to get along without men. Who, after all, needs men to man up, so to say, in a world that is not as physically threatening as it once used to be? Technologies and systems of government have long replaced a lot of what was previously required of men and their raw strength and abilities to accomplish. The ability of the so-called independent boss girl type of woman who can boldly stand up and say, I don't need no man. And to see men purely as an optional part of their life and no longer necessary for the successful raising of offspring is kind of an interesting phenomenon to see in human history. And largely, it's a pretty recent one. It is not the norm. It is an anomaly. Society definitely has shifted in the demands placed on men because of the advent of our modern world. Men are increasingly seen as a commodity that can be disposed of. And suddenly, that which was once taken for granted about what a man was and his function and place in society is now highly questionable. Men are no longer expected to be as hard and rugged as they once were and are maybe even expected by some to be a little bit more soft and sophisticated as our contemporary environment is much more physically forgiving than the environments of the past. And certain demonstrations of masculine mindsets from the past might seem not only out of place in our culture, but perhaps even considered as toxic behavior in contemporary society today. Then, of course, there's the questions of what it means to be a man. Should a man who chooses to be, or for whatever reason, remain single? Or a man, for who many different reasons, has yet to have, or for some reason cannot have children? Or what it means to be a man who has limited physical abilities, who might be something of a runt, maybe has a handicapped or maybe he, now he's old or he's not as capable of taking care of himself as others as he used to be. Are such men really men? And is all of what it means to be a man simply limited to the stage of life that has to do with attracting a mate, producing and raising children? Are those who fail to do such somehow less of men because they aren't doing such? Or simply cannot, for some reason, outside their ability to control. I'd ultimately argue no. What it means to be a man will have somewhat of a contextual place. You're a man in time and place, after all. And society often shifts, and, and the demands placed on what men need to do can often change, especially as we have seen in recent decades and centuries. However, while not departing from the raw biological aspects and functionality of manhood within creation, I think what it means to be a man will depend on where you are, not only in your state of life, but your particular time, place, and capacity to function as a man within society. 
That doesn't mean that men who are unable to completely fulfill typical biological, biological functions and expectations associated with their nature aren't real men. It just means they might have to look for other creative outlets to pour their masculine energies into. But the end goal, I believe, is ultimately the same. The hardwiring, the plumbing, it's all still the same. And while we might be expected to fulfill roles in a way maybe we didn't have to in the past or vice versa, I believe the task of man is still ultimately the same. Whether whatever limited capacities he may have to be able to function in such ways, I believe man is ultimately there to help create a world in which life can thrive and humanity can flourish. And that man should leverage his masculinity to that end, regardless of his location and time, place, and culture and context. And last but not least, finally, this brings us to the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is described as being the Alpha and the Omega in the Bible. He's Alpha and Omega and everything in between. So whatever our views of gender, whatever our views of humanity, whatever our views of man, Jesus Christ is ultimately the demonstration of what it means to be fully human. And in that, to be fully a man. Others might serve as great models. And there's many men that we may all look up to. But all of humanity and all of manhood must ultimately bow and surrender what it means to be a man to he who is the model of all humanity and manhood. As a result, as men, we don't look to John Wayne or William Wallace as models of, Walt it, of what it ultimately means to be a man. Though they might have some redeemable characteristics and things we ultimately do want to model and incorporate into what we understand of what it means to be a man. But at the end of the day, we must ultimately put our eyes squarely on that of Jesus Christ as the ultimate representation of what it means to be a man and what a man is supposed to be. And where all others fall short, we find no such shortcomings in the person of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we understand our masculinity to be something we have been given for the ultimate service of others and not for our self-aggrandizement or pleasures. As men, we may be strong, but we must not be brutes or savages. And just as Christ came into the world to be a servant, and so that we might have, through him, life and life more abundantly, so too we as men, I believe, must ultimately harness our masculinity and the sacrificial ways of Jesus for the flourishment of those who are placed in our care. And far from being dominant beasts and brutes that are hell-bent on conquest and plunder and rape and destruction, we are to empty ourselves and to use our masculinity in humble and loving service of others, even as Jesus Christ did himself. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, episode 169, jimmystable.com podcast, what it means to be a man in an age of toxicity and confusion. 
Hope I've stirred up some thoughts in you and given you something to think about. And you could say, oh man, I have an opinion on this. <laughs> if you do, I'd love to hear back from you. Email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com, or you can read out to me on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want links to me on Facebook and Twitter, you can find those links at the jimmystable.com website. If you have yet to subscribe and you want to be blown away more by content that comes out on a weekly basis, go to jimmystable.com slash subscribe and find your favorite way of subscribing. And if you haven't had your opportunity to leave your glowing five-star review, let me just encourage you, man up, Go to Amazon, Spotify, and Apple, and all the other places you can leave glowing five-star reviews and say, man, Jimmy, you've really given me something to think about, and I just want to thank you for making such an awesome podcast. You make me want to be a better man. <laughs> I always have fun with that. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. Take care, everybody. God bless. Have a good one. That's all I have to say about that. That's the right on, man. You said it all.